Hello, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Bites, a series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. Risk Bites looks at the key dental legal risks and issues affecting dental practitioners across Australia and provides helpful advice and guidance on how to steer clear of them, leaving you free to provide safe and high quality dental care for your patients. In this episode, Lessons Learned from A Life at the Coalface, we're going to be chatting with my dear colleague, Dr. Mike Rutherford. Now, as some of you may be aware, Mike is taking this opportunity to hang up his pencil and to retire from practice. And I didn't want to let him go without having a chat with him about his career in dentistry. So thank you for joining me today, Mike. It's a pleasure, Annaline, but I would have happily slunk out the door and just waved goodbye. But <laughs> here we are. I don't recall that being offered as an option. So <laughs> we wanted to take the opportunity to talk about Mike's career. Now, Mike's actually had quite an interesting career in that I think that it would be fair to say, Mike, that you're of the generation where you did one job for life. Would you agree yeah, with that? Absolutely. And you haven't, but you've kind of done the same job but in lots and lots of different ways. So I just wanted to take some time exploring that. So my understanding is you graduated in 1979, a vintage year I hear. Uh, not according to our dean. He, he recalled it as a particularly uninspiring group of graduates, of which I was one. I think it's always nice when your dean gives you that feedback, doesn't it? It just warms the cockles of your hearts, but at least they remembered you. I mean, yes, but not for the right reasons. <laughs> I, I will say, though, that our year went on to produce more ADA presidents and more specialists than the average, mm. uh, even though at the time I did agree with the dean that we were particularly uninspiring. <laughs> Maybe late, everyone. Late bloomers. <laughs> Maybe everyone rose to the challenge. So, Mike, it's my understanding that following graduation, you went into the army as a military dentist. Is that correct? That's correct, yep. So did you have like a graduate entry? Because these days, of course, you can apply for the military when you're at dental school or was it something you decided to do on graduation? Um, no, it was one of those, uh, not a forced decision, but a decision that I had to make, um, possibly of not my own choosing. Um, my car caught fire in fourth year and I had $20 in the bank. And as the oldest child of a widowed pensioner, um, I had to have some means of support. So I looked at the public service as an option, but at that time, and I, I'm still not sure whether they do it or not, but the military offered a undergraduate um, wage, if you like, while you studied, uh, with a return of service, which is basically twice whatever you took as an undergraduate. Um, so I thought the military sounded more interesting um, and they didn't have little clinics out at Baduri and places like that that I'd never heard of. Um, so I, I guess that's why I chose the military. That's awesome. And it, I think it's interesting what you say. Sometimes we make decisions because life gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want or what we were thinking. But my understanding from talking with you that, about this before is it actually turned out to be quite an adventure. Oh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. And look, I thoroughly recommend a career in the military um, if you're that sort of a person. I mean, the, the Army's got some pretty hardline attitudes towards how you dress and how long your hair is and what you do. But if your personality can cope with that, it's a brilliant way to start a career. There's no commercial pressures on you at all. Uh, you are usually surrounded by colleagues who are keen to help you out and develop you. Um, and... 
I guess without the commercial pressures, you can give each and every patient the best dentistry, the, what you believe is in their best interest, and, and, and as long as they agree. Um, but it's not constrained by whether they've got the time or whether they've got the money. Now, that's a really good point because I remember being told, because coming from the UK and the NHS, the NHS was, of course, founded in part because of the terrible, terrible dental health of patients. And um, in the Boer War, my understanding is there'd been as many people who had been discharged medically because of dental problems as because of medical problems. And this pattern continued through the many world wars that the UK went through. So in the end, they opened the National Health Service in part to address that. So I think that the military has a history of recognising that dental disease and dental problems can really impact on people's ability to serve their country. So they do take it very seriously, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And, and part of my role in the military was to produce a presentation which highlighted, I mean, it, it, it's historical, but how many servicemen, Australian servicemen in, the world, in World War I were invalided out because they couldn't eat the hard biscuits. And it's an extraordinary number of, of servicemen who are not fit for combat. Uh, and, I mean, if that's your priority and that's why you're there, um, yeah, it seems such a waste to have people invalided out because they can't eat biscuits. No, absolutely, because they can't sustain themselves. And it's quite, when you put it in those terms, it's quite dramatic, isn't it? So I've got to ask, because it's something that fascinates me. When you went into the military, did you have to learn to drill and stuff like that? Because I've, not as in drill teeth, Mark. Because I've yeah. been told that medicos, nurses, doctors, dentists are hopeless at all the drilling, but that they have to be at the same standard because you become an officer, don't you? Yep, yep, absolutely. I mean... The military always looked a little kindly on us because they knew we were going to be hopeless. And that's, you know, we, we earned a good wage in the military. It was um, more than your average soldier or officer um, because we had a specialised job. And with that specialisation, yeah, the rest of the military accepted you're going to be pretty crap. But um, we had a initial course at Canungra, which used to be the, uh, the Land Warfare Centre, and that's where we learned to drill, march, climb up hills, shoot a rifle, uh, jump off towers into water 30 feet below you, yelling out swimmer or non-swimmer as you went down. <laughs> um, and look, that's one of the wonders of the military service, that you didn't know what you are going to be, at, be doing at 3 o'clock on a Tuesday in six weeks' time. It could have been anything. Rifle range, counting silver in the in the officers' mess, uh, drill and fill, or doing a five k run with a backpack on. You would have loved that as well. All that running around and jumping off things, and I know <laughs> you would have. I could you would have loved that. Now, was my understanding is you went to PNG? Was that your first posting, or was that how did that come about? Uh, look, that that was about my third posting. Um, I got sent to Sydney soon after joining, um, the problem was I was the only single dentist on the East Coast, so they tended to push me around rather than families. And when I returned to um, Brisbane, uh, the barracks, I applied for a posting to New Guinea because it was one of the few overseas postings we had at the time. Um, and I hadn't got around to talking to my then-girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, about this, and the posting actually came through while we were on our honeymoon. 
So I came back from um, from honeymoon, and on the first day, the OC said, "Mike, I've held it open for you. You've got twenty four hours to decide. Do you want your posting?" And I rang Jen and said, "Look, do you want to go to New Guinea?" And she said, "What for the weekend?" And I said, "No, for two years." I said, "You've got to tell me now." And she said, "I can't tell you now. You tell the army. They've got to wait." Now Jen confided later that she knew she was going to go, but she wasn't going to get pushed and rolled over on the first day of married life after a honeymoon, and the army needed to know that. And what was the army's response to that? (laughs) Um, I guess like all institutions, you make demands and then if you want the person or if it suits your your agenda, you do give them another 24 hours, and that's all we needed, Mm. a bit of just a bit of time to sit down and talk about it. Yeah, that's good. So I remember seeing a fantastic photo of you, you when you and I presented at the Young Dentist Conference. I think it was probably about 2015 or 2016. And we put up pictures of ourselves as young dentists just for our own amusement to see how much we changed. And there was a fantastic photo that you shared of you providing dental treatment. No gloves, no mask, no nothing. So do you want to talk us through the conditions in Papua New Guinea or was it just um, reflective of what was going on in dentistry in the 80s? Um, look, both. I mean, in those days, the early 80s, that was 81 to 84, um, we only put gloves on for surgicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't wear masks unless we had a cold and we're going to spit on a patient. Um, New Guinea had its own challenges. Uh, that particular photo, and I, I love that photo, that's in a place called Mendy in the Southern Highlands. And um, it's very isolated. Uh, you're the only show in town, so you get to do everything. Um, we The air compressor had broken down, so we were working off a bottle of nitrogen. The overhead light was off our Corolla car. That was a headlamp. So we had to put sunglasses on the patients, and they broke out in a bit of a sweat because it gets a bit warm in front of those lights. And my assistant's name was Gabriel. And he was actually the gardener. But my designated dental assistant didn't believe that dental assisting was manly enough for a warrior. And he wanted to work outside. Gabriel, as a gardener, knew how hot it was. And he knew that the dental surgery was air-conditioned. So they swapped jobs and everybody was happy with that outcome. He was a great dental assistant uh, and really took pride in his work. So... Look, it, it's a mixture. We, um, you know, scope of practice, no, you just did whatever was in front of you. Uh, car accidents, tribal fights, domestic violence, the whole works. And as a way to learn what to do, when you know you're the only show in town, when you know that if you don't do it, nobody else is going to do it, um, it gives you a lot of latitude to do your best and learn on the job if you like, um, without without harming your patient because there were no other options. Oh, absolutely. No, I understand exactly what you're saying. I didn't realise that you used to also treat the local population, though. I had assumed that you just treated military personnel, but that doesn't sound correct. Um, it, it, it is and it isn't, like most um, things in New Guinea. Um, in Australia, we only uh, treat service personnel. In New Guinea, you treated the service personnel and their family. Mm-hmm. But the PNG tribal concept of family is very large. It's basically, they, you've probably heard the term one talk. One talk actually means one talk as in one language. 
Now, New Guinea's got something like 740 separate languages. So most tribes have their own language. And if you're a one talk, you're family. Mm-hmm. So basically you just treated whoever walked through the door. It was, it was far easier than trying to work out who's related to who. That sounds fair enough. But also I think morally and ethically, if you are the only show in town and someone comes in with a dental problem and you've got the ability to fix that, then I think as healthcare providers, it would be quite abhorrent to us to turn those patients away. Yeah, for sure. But I, I guess I should have um, explained, I was talking about Mendy being the only show in town. I was based in Lay, which had um, one civilian dentist um, with an offsider who was in the year behind me in um, at dental school. And there was a public clinic, clinic at Angau Hospital but it was always constrained by the huge crowds, mm. lack of money, lack of materials. Um, so, yes, we did provide a service that backed up whoever couldn't be seen at the at, at the dental hospital. Mm-hmm. You loved your time in PNG, didn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, learned so much. And look, there's another aspect there. Jen and I were newly married. And in Brisbane, we were the son and daughter of... Whoever. Other people. Mm-hmm. In New Guinea, we went up there as Mr. and Mrs. Rutherford. And it's a great foundation um, where you don't have that. You're a different couple. You're, a, you're an entity there. And that these people meet you for the first time knowing that you're married and that you're a couple. Oh, that's lovely. It's reinventing yourself a little bit in a way, mm. isn't it? Mm. That's cool. So you left um, New Guinea, and you did you do more service in Australia, or did you come out of the military then? Um, no, I was offered a command position, mm-hmm. um, so I ran a dental unit for a couple of years. Whereabouts? Um, in Ogre, in okay. Ogre. and um, that was wonderful. I guess that was my introduction to management, <laughs> um, army style, uh, which is pretty brutal, even in the dental field. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I'll leave it at that, but um, it was a yeah, very interesting time. And then you went on your overseas experience, didn't you? Which I think is a fantastic thing for people to do if they have the opportunity because you ended up in the UK, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And that's a combination. I mean, um, my army service, service had pretty well destroyed Jen's career by then. Um, and also we that was still the era where all dentists tried to do a stint in the UK. It was still the, the motherland, if you like. Um, it was still where all dentists went to, to get a bit of experience and you, you could work there comfortably, um, but hard, mm. um, see a bit of Europe and then come back, um, you know, having had a job for two years or three years or whatever. Whereabouts in London were you? Uh, Camden High Street, which is, yeah, it was a great, a very interesting place. It was the tail end of the troubles with the IRA. Um, it was the skinhead era. So on gyro day, which is um, unemployment pension, um, every second Thursday, the skinheads would stand in the middle of the intersection, open beers, and just stand there and talk. And all the traffic would stop. And if anyone tooted their horn, a bunch of skinheads would go and drag them out of their car and beat the daylights out of them. So we'd be working away in the surgery, and then you'd suddenly notice there's no traffic noise. So you just peer out the window and say, oh, yeah, the the skinheads are back. (laughs) Um, But it was really interesting. Um, You get to see so much of Europe. And I think for Australians in those days of the NHS, it really gave you an appreciation of just 
how good dentistry is in Australia. And I mean the standard of training, though I'm not knocking the English system at all, but the NHS was constrained by how much money the government could give it. So as idealistic, uh, relatively new graduates, we were confronted with this idea that you had two grades of amalgam. You had the NHS amalgam, uh, which was uh, tri-trade and dispensed, and then if a patient wanted to pay privately, you opened the second drawer and you took out the encapsulated amalgam. And they got the special amalgam. The posh amalgam. The posh amalgam. So I guess this concept of the standard of care you were providing, even though this was supposed to be a everybody gets free dentistry, you were actually providing a two-tiered service dependent on how much the person could afford. Um, And I do recall I had one patient who wanted a private extraction. What was the and, difference? You well, took all the tooth out or what? <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I said to the guy, I said, look, there's no point. Um, I'm going to do exactly the same. And he said, no, I want it privately, please. So he paid five pounds. Uh-huh. Um, and I gave his back a pat a few times. I probably asked him how he was a few more times. And I probably waited another two minutes for the local anaesthetic to work. But... Um, he just insisted on it. And the other strange thing in the UK is occasionally people would tip you. Oh, righto. And like a hairdresser. Yes, yeah. And then they say, look, this is for you, mate. Like, uh, buy yourself something nice. Thanks, buy yourself something nice. <laughs> and I, I don't know, I had the same sort of mixed emotions about it as having a two-tiered system of amalgam. Um, I always gave it to the dental nurse because yeah. I figured they never got anything and they, they did all the hard work. Um, but it was just strange. It, it was just something, well, not strange. It was something that was unfamiliar to us. Yeah. As you know, I left the UK in 2003 and in my first job, which was 99, 2000, when I did my VT year, I was given a tip by a patient and I agree with you, I didn't know what to do with it. So I just gave it to the dental nurse. And, and it's that kind of like almost embarrassment, isn't it? I, I really didn't do anything special. Um, I feel really uncomfortable that you feel the need to uplift my wage. Yes. And I just, this is just not sitting well with me. So I couldn't have moved it to my dental assistant any quicker. Like I nearly took a head up, have this, (laughs) have this five pounds. And they were always grateful for it too, because the wages for dental assistants were pretty, pretty miserable. Mm. Um, One thing I did get there that I I, I just loved it, but there's a nunnery around the corner and it was traditional that you treated the clergy at no charge. Um, They probably all went on the NHS, but at the end of um, each appointment with one particular nun, she would frame herself in the doorway, drop to one knee and gripe my hands and pray for my well-being. And I just wonder if that saved me from a car accident or falling off a cliff. Like, I think we've all in our lives had that moment when you think, geez, I could have died then. And then I think, yeah, maybe that was Sister Mary. You say we've all had that moment. Now, Mike, I I think that your attitude to risk and risk aversion is slightly different to mine. I remember the first time we met, you were on crutches with a broken pelvis because you'd come off your bike and I lectured you on how dangerous road biking was. But then that said, I was heavily pregnant at the time, so I shouldn't really have been lecturing anyone about risk. But yeah, so maybe not everyone, but I do see your point. Yeah. And and, and, and let's point out that that's personal risk, not uh, risk in dentistry, <laughs> um, which not. I am adverse. 
first uh, <laughs> two. Um, but personal risk, yeah, there's been a few moments. I certainly have. So after you, did, you didn't want to stay in the UK, though, it was ready time to come home. Oh, look, it was always that idea that we were there for a working holiday. Um, I know a few people who stayed on yeah. for, for, for better or worse. Some of them, at that stage, you could get 105% mortgage. So some dentists would buy a house, um, kit it out, live there for two years and trust that house prices go up and they could go home. Um, house prices went down and there's yeah. a few few of our colleagues got um, put in the position where they couldn't afford to go home. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's not a hardship, but it wasn't in their master plan. No, the 80s, of course, we had a big recession, so that would do that. <laughs> so you were back here and... From memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, 88, you bought, opened your practice? Uh, um, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it, it would have been around Sometime then. in the late 80s. Yeah. Look, so, I, ca I came back and um, I, I, this we all had the mindset in the 80s or the graduate 70s that once you'd done your apprenticeship, you bought a practice. That's what everybody did. I like the idea, having worked in a group practice in London and also from the army, to be in at least a partnership um, with the idea that you had somebody to back you up, somebody to talk to, and somebody to cover for you for when you're on holidays. Um, so I actually spent a year doing locums to get a feel for what different practices were like and work out what style of practice and with what sort of person I wanted to work with. Is that when you met Mark then on a locum? Yeah, yeah. Debbie Bar, uh, Debbie Logan, as she was then, was in my year of dental, uh, mm -hmm. dental school. Um, she was going up to Cairns for a, um, a sort of extended holiday. I filled in for her and then um, she announced she wasn't coming back. And uh, Mark and I got on well enough that um, he offered me a partnership. So you bought into that practice then? It wasn't yes, a scratch yes. startup for you? No, no. Um, and I bought into the practice and I bought into what was pretty well full books because Debbie was a wonderful dentist and um, a very kindly soul. So um, she'd attracted a lot of patients. Um, I just had to convince them that a six foot one male was much the same as a five foot four uh, female. Like, <laughs> And of course, you have the other thing which makes things a little bit when you go into a practical, you're left handed. Yes. And we didn't used to have left handed chairs back no, in the 80s, and, did and we? we still discriminate against bloody left handers. It's, um, <laughs> I, I was over at my, uh, my daughter's place um, helping with the grandchildren on Monday, and I noticed a spoon for infants that has the forks or the tines at 90 degrees to the handle. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's clever except it was a right-handed spoon. So all those little slights all you right-handers put on us, design your <laughs> golf courses for right-handers, design your scissors for right-handers, design your dental chairs for right-handers. Um, we, we are the last of the minority groups that are, are still reckon? being... Yeah, it's still being discriminated against. Okay. Sorry, sorry you've been <laughs> oppressed for so many years. Sorry, you can, you can edit it out if you like, <laughs> that little rant. No, you're all good. So you and Mark practised very, very happily together, I know, and you expanded the practice, but you also started to diversify, I guess, your interests and the type of dentistry that you were providing. So I'm thinking about a couple of things. I'm thinking about the additional study that you did. 
you have a history degree. Do you oh, not? yeah. Remember yes, that? Yes, yes. Sorry. Yes, sorry. sorry. I know you're old, but this is the dementia um, kicked in. <laughs> no, no, I, I thought we were talking there. I don't know where that came in. Uh, look, after I destroyed Jen's career uh, by moving around in the army, um, she went back to train as a psychologist and end up doing an honours and master's degree. Um, so I found out for a long time while she was studying, I was drinking beer and arguing with the TV. And I thought, this is probably not good for anyone. So um, I've always been interested in history. So I went back and did a, uh, just a, a BA in social history and international diplomacy, um, which is, it's wonderful. And, and I realised how refreshing it is to study because you want to and to study without caring if your lecturer disagreed with you because the marks and your success was not the objective. The objective was to learn. And it's, and it's very liberating when you can argue with a lecturer or ignore them if you feel like it. Yeah, because that's not something in our privilege we have in dentistry. No, it's not. No. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And then, of course, you diversified the practice because you and Mark provided a lot of IV sedation and did a lot of wisdom teeth under sedation. That's correct, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, Mark was um, under the grandfather clause there where um, it's not the case now. You have to have the... Um, What's the word for it? The endorsement, uh, the yep. conscious sedation endorsement with APRA. Um, in those days, it was like a, an apprenticeship. You learned off somebody else. We were actually, I never did the sedation side. I always did the, the, the dentistry side. But there came a time when um, Westmead in Sydney was offering the sedation diploma and they had to decide what to do about all these dentists out there that were doing it because they'd always done it. A lot of them had trained in the UK. Um, so they brought in a grandfather clause mm -hmm. where uh, an assessor who happened to be Greg Marnie, who provided a previous podcast on IV sedation and local anaesthetic, came out and observed you and asked a lot of very telling questions. And over a period of about, I think it was up to about three months, he assessed whether you were safe to continue under the new system. And then they brought in these raft of um, protocols that you had to follow, which was about training, compulsory CPR. Um, Mark had to go off on a, a refresher training course every year. Um, and I went with him every year too, because I figured if something went wrong, yeah, I'm not going to stand back and watch him do it all. Um, it was better if we were both trained to deal with the problem. And I think we took some of the staff along as well, but certainly the CPR courses, everybody was involved. And we insisted a lot of the CPR courses want to do it in the waiting room because there's plenty of room, plenty of air. And we said, no, we want to do it in the surgery, in the dental chair, because that's where it's going to happen. Yeah. And we wanted two operator resus and not one operator resus. Yeah. We did that last time we did our CPR training. We did it in the waiting room initially so that everybody has a crack. And then we did it in the chair and did a full um, simulation calling for the red bag, directing people, one person supervising depth. So three people doing CPR. I said essentially one person supervising the depth of the compressions and giving feedback and then two people alternating. And it yeah. was... It's fascinating, isn't it, how tiring it is, how mm -hmm. hard it is to get the depth of compressions compared to when you're kneeling on the floor, when that patient's in the dental chair. You, you, it, it is harder. 
yeah, yeah. It feels different. And yeah. it's really good to have a, a crack at how it feels before you need to actually know. Yeah. Because what you've said is quite right of the patient. I mean, we do have patients who have heart attacks and et cetera in the waiting room with the stress of coming in. Mm. But generally, particularly if you're doing sedation, if there's going to be a medical emergency, it's only going to really happen in one place. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the other great thing when you do that is when you say, Tracy, go and ring the ambulance, we would say, Tracy would walk out and say, I'm going to ring the ambulance mm-hmm. and role play it. Because when you say somebody go and turn on the oxygen, there's a chance they're going to come back and say the handle's not there or the bottle's nearly empty. Um, so, and, and it also gives you a head count. If all the people who have left the room have left the room, you then know how many people are left to either do the CPR or get you the emergency drugs or get you the pillow or to help lower the patient onto the floor onto a firmer surface. Yeah, no, it's it's really good. I think we talk about this from time to time when we give our presentations, but I do think there is no substitute for simulation mm-hmm. um, because that's when you find when your weaknesses are. And isn't it great to know that before it actually matters? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We had to, I mean, when, well, yeah, I did have a patient have a heart attack. I was going to say we never had a heart attack. There's failing memory. Yeah, I remember that. Um but yes, we we never had a true emergency, um, as in a life-threatening emergency, but we certainly had incidences where we were very thankful for the training. And now after I've been a DLC for quite a few years, I realised too that if things didn't work out, our training was going to back us up as far as our decision-making goes, mm-hmm. but also... From a liability point of view, as in we were trained as much as we reasonably could have been, so there couldn't be an allegation you didn't know what you're doing. Yeah, you had all the appropriate steps in place. Mm. So as if you weren't busy enough, from recollection you diversified in two other ways at this time as well, in that you did some work for the ADAQ complaints line. Yeah, look, um, I've got to give Mark credit that for that. Um, he was the, the ADAQ used to have uh, a... Fee inquiry and patient complaint hotline where they, or a patient, if they were unhappy, would ring the ADA. So uh, look, back in the 80s, um, while the ADA wasn't the regulator, they would, more than they do now, arbitrate Mm -hmm. in um, disputes between patients and, and dentists. And Mark was on this roster where for two weeks all the complaints came to him. He talked to the patients and occasionally he'd ring up somebody and say, look, Mr. Dr. Smith, um, got a patient here who's unhappy with what you did. And I don't know if it was of the time, but any time we made those calls, the dentist usually said, what can I do to make it right? Mm-hmm. There was this embarrassment about having a peer know about something that had gone wrong or an unhappiness of the patient. So... I sense in most cases there's a real impetus on both sides to come to a resolution. Um, I guess more than we do in this job, um, we used to make a few judgment calls on whether the standard was appropriate or not and actually say to the dentist, look, I don't think you can justify that approach or, or on the alternate say, look, I don't think you've done anything wrong. I would have done exactly the same. Yeah, it's interesting you make that comparison because, of course, 
it's very different to this role because we're not the arbiters of clinical judgment. So even though we're all practicing clinicians, we, we're not here to say right or wrong. We're here to protect. We're not a mediation um, process, are we? Mm. We're not mediating between the patient and the, and the dental practitioner. Quite, we are there solely to protect the dental practitioner. Uh, and, and they'll give us a wonderful service. Um, no, we absolutely. used to share rooms with um, medicos. And they couldn't believe that the Dental Association would do something so practical and so effective. And I, they, yeah, whether they're being cynical, they used to say, well, if the Medical Association try that, it'd be on because everyone would want to put in their two cents worth. Well, that's right. And, and give their own opinion. That's right. Different people. I mean, and we've often said that, haven't we, yeah. when we work with our medical colleagues in medical protection, how different their cases are, how different their members are. Just doctors and dentists have never been the same, have they? No, no. I mean, we are procedures. Absolutely. I mean, for 99% of the time we see a patient, we're doing a procedure. Um, we're poking them. Uh, we, we're hurting them. We're charging them money. Uh, there's the always yeah, For the privilege. Um, so there's all those things that are very different from a medical practice where uh -huh. um, the some uh, amount of human contact might be a pat on the shoulder or a handshake. Blood pressure cuff. Or a blood pressure cuff, yeah. Speaking about procedures, do you ever wonder and try and work out how many teeth you've pulled out or how many injections you've given? No, I haven't. I know some people do work out, you know, it was half a tonne of amalgam or something. I mean, I remember being on an exercise in the army one time and the brigadier came along and he was looking around and he said, Rutherford, how long would it take you to fill that bucket? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, like, I, I had no idea and I'm still... I guess I'm not interested. It's like, yeah, it, it sort of quantifies your dentistry. Yeah. Dentistry is not about how many fillings you did or how many teeth you took out. It's what you did for the people. That's right. And That's right. It is. And it's about whether you provide a good, provided a good service. Do you have any standout days, though, where you recall having, uh, for example, I recall the day, it was the 23rd of December, which is exactly when you don't want to be doing this. And I extracted 45 teeth that day across several different Ooh, patients. Yeah. I know, terrible idea. And you and I both know that's a terrible idea. And for anyone listening, the reason that's a terrible idea is because you're not necessarily going to be there on Christmas Day or Boxing mm, Day when mm, all those people come back wrong. with a dry socket. Now, as it happens, I was there for those patients. So it was a considered decision. And it was a day that was intentionally booked for those extractions because these were people with problems and there were no other days. Mm -hmm. But it just really stands out in my mind because I'm not going to lie, by the end of the day I was knackered, yeah. absolutely exhausted because it was a lot of teeth to take out. So mm -hmm. do you recall any days like that, really days where you just did sedations all day or is it all um, just a bit of a blur now, Mike, let's be honest? Yeah, look, it's all a, a bit of a blur, I, I guess. <laughs> Things that stand out in my career was um, in New Guinea when a oh, about a four-year-old child um, had a bit of um, conduit in their in their mouth, you know, the old telecom pipe, and tripped over, and it actually stripped the soft palate, so there's a oh, triangle yes. flap hanging down, and mum brought the child down. And I looked at its teeth and, you know, the, the anteriors were a little bit mucked around. There's a bit of bruising and bleeding on the, on the lip, but I didn't see the soft tissue uh, injury. And it was only when there was a moment of silence that I heard the rasping and had a look and the palate was hanging down, the soft tissue. Um, at that stage, I think the river, 
the bridge had been washed out so we couldn't get into town where the theatres and the doctors were. Um, so the GP, Army GP, gave a ketamine mm-hmm. um, IM general anaesthetic. Uh, we stitched up the soft pa- palate and I sat by the child's bed all night with my textbook on how to do a tracheotomy. Yeah. Um, and you know, <laughs> while the child was asleep and mum was asleep, just mentally putting out, working out where that scalpel was going to go. Um, I was worried about swelling of the throat. Yeah, of course. And I can't remember, but I think Ian, the doctor, probably gave some sort of anti-inflammatory or antihistamine or something. Yeah. Um, he was tucked up in bed. He said, I was yeah, going to say, you weren't give, worried. Give me a call if you've got any problems. <laughs> uh, it's, but, but you remember things like that. Yeah, you do. And look, a tracheotomy, if there's one procedure, we've all been really pleased to never have to perform because mm-hmm. we were trained to do them in inverted commas. But the reality of it is, is only one person in your group of six in human dissection could actually do it. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. only one person ever got to have a go. Um, and the rest of you, the other five of you in that six, it was just theoretical. Yeah. And I guess if you, if it was ever going to happen, it's not often you get the luxury of sitting there with Cunningham's textbook. Uh, reading it, you know, waiting for the moment when you had to do it. Um, but the tray was there and, and, and all the bits and pieces. So. Oh, I'd forgotten about Cunningham's. That's a blast from the past. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, the other thing I was thinking about with your diversification was, of course, you used to supervise on the UQ extraction clinic. So how did that come about? Um, I'm not sure. I think I knew a few people who did mainly clinic two, which was restorative. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, rightly or wrongly, I didn't think I had that much to offer in helping students with restorative, but probably due to an interest, um, the military background, and also all those years of IV sedations taking out wisdom teeth. And the NHS. And the NHS. I, I guess I thought that um, I had a little bit of a bent and a little bit of an understanding of extractions and minor oral surgery. It was that private extraction, wasn't it? It was. It was that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you enjoyed that. I know you did. Loved it. Loved yeah. it. I mean, yeah, if you get a student to take an alginate impression, they may listen to you or they may not. But if you demonstrate how to take a tooth out, every student pays attention. Mm, they are so focused. Mm. And the great thing about it was that, I don't know how long I'd practised it then, maybe 20 years, you realise a lot you did was automatic. And suddenly you've got to explain to a student why you put the forceps below the gum, why you push apically, why you rotate, um, how you assess how much pressure, how you assess which way the roots are running just by the resistance Mm -hmm. to your movements. And it's lovely to realise you have those skills, but it's also very educational to yourself as well as the students when you've actually got to put it in words. You've got to think about it and put it in words. No, I agree. And you realise so much of it is autopilot. That we just know. We know how to do it, um, but we have trouble describing how or, or why. And don't you find sometimes, I had this yesterday with um, the recent graduate in our surgery, I was trying to explain how to restore missing buckle cusps 
and they were looking at me and I was looking at them. And I realized, of course, I'd forgotten to tell them my trick. So I put the top of my arm back to front. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep. And once I and and once I said that, it suddenly became apparent as to what I was actually talking about. And you can see that light bulb moment where, because yes, yes. of course you're telling somebody to use something backwards, which has become instinctive now, and, and mm-hmm. you, you're nodding because you know exactly why. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, yeah. it's funny, isn't it? So when I met you, of course, and you came to work for Dental Protection, which is approximately 12 years ago, and I know that because I was pregnant when, you know, counting mm-hmm. things by your pregnancies, that's what happens when you get to our age, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Mike's many pregnancies. Um, so Mike came in at a time when I was on my maternity leave, and then we've worked together ever since. And when I first met you, of course, you still owned the practice. You were still on the uni clinic. You still had 101 things to do. And of course, with the passage of time, you've let some of those things go mm-hmm. and then work solely for dental protection. And of course, up until reasonably recently, Mike was my boss. Yes, which was pretty strange because Annie actually trained me. Um, <laughs> All his bad habits. Yes. And Annie is far smarter than me and better <laughs> at the job. But I happen to be older with a bit of military management experience. I guess it was of its time. So I got to experience Mike's military management techniques. (laughs) Never let them wonder what's going on. Let them know. (laughs) And now, of course, we come to a time where you're looking forward to doing something other than working for dental protection, which is really exciting. And while I'm going to miss you terribly, and I don't know what I'm going to do without you next week, um, I'm really excited for you. Thank you very much. And we can back up the bus there just a second because I, I thought you were going to say, and now the worm has turned and Annie's now my boss <laughs> and has had a, a, an opportunity for the last nine months uh, yeah. to repay me in spades uh, <laughs> any slights I, I imposed on her. And I've chosen not to. And she has chosen not to. And look, this was like um, when I left practice, I guess, we sold to the practice to Andrea, who worked mm-hmm. for me. Um, and at the time, part of it was the deal was that we, Mark and I, both stayed there for five or six years to help Andrea out. And that was one of the contractual arrangements. And I explained this to my accountant and they said, you think you will think nothing will change, but everything will change. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no, we know Andrea. She works with us. Um, we work the same way, we treat people the same way, and but he was right. Mm-hmm. Ian was right. Everything changed. Including the walls changed colour over the weekends. And I realised that my desk was no longer my desk and my car park was no longer my car park. Um, but with goodwill on both sides, mm-hmm. it really worked well. Mm-hmm. And the same happened when you took over. Yeah, we've been really lucky, actually. I'd like to think with goodwill, it's actually yeah. worked really well. And, yeah. and I hope I haven't been in the corner saying, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Well, I, not out loud, probably in your head. <laughs> but no, it has. And, and to the other team members. <laughs> oh, of course, but only behind my back, which <laughs> yeah. I think is really important. <laughs> but seriously, I think, though, that actually you raise a really important point. When we're traveling and trans- transitioning through different parts of our career, you have times where you're the mentor and you have times when you're the mentee. And just because you're the most experienced or oldest person in the practice, there's a lot to learn from some of the younger people in the practice who are mm. mentor. You know, you, it, it can go both ways. Yep. It's not just about us mentoring the younger members of the team. It's about taking feedback from them. And in many ways, it shouldn't actually matter who's driving the bus or who's heading things up from a management perspective. Because if you're a good team, 
You can pass that responsibility between yourselves. Yep. You can talk between yourselves. You should be able to give honest and open feedback to mm -hmm. team members. And how many times do we see in practices where they don't have that transparency of communication and that goodwill to use yes. your word? There's a lot of um, parallel or similarities between dental practice and working as a dental legal consultant. When you were talking about transitioning, I thought you were going to say that you were transitioning to Melbourne or somewhere and you say you've moved, you've gone to Melbourne to give a lecture. Um, one of our members might ring me mm -hmm. in the middle of a case and want my opinion. Absolutely. And I guess with our training, with our transparency and with our goodwill, I believe we give the same sort of advice. If it's not word perfect, it's pretty close. And it's not a company line or a company policy. It's just when you're all trained the same, when you're all transparent with the way you deal with cases and we all learn off each other, we all tend to give the same sort of advice. I agree, but also we sense check it across each other with our regular triages mm, because mm. many of our listeners wouldn't know this, how we do sense check advice and check that we are consistent um, and we learn from each other. And regardless of where you stand in the team pecking order, everybody has something to contribute mm. and everyone has something to give. I think it comes down to our personalities as well. We have a bit of a joke about people often ask us how to become a dental legal consultant. And there are, of course, certain parameters. You have to have 10 years post-grad experience. Um, you have to be, I don't know, reasonably uh, articulate, uh, be able to write well, because mm -hmm. we help people with a lot of written correspondence to the regulator. Uh, you have to have a really good sense of humor because the job can be quite demanding. Um, substitute the word can because the job's quite demanding mm -hmm. and if you don't have a good sense of humor I think when you're constantly dealing with acute problems it can drag you down can't it yeah and I'd add two things to that um we always seek a demonstrated commitment to the to the profession we do. so you've either been on an ADA uh, committee or you've been a mentor or you've been a supervisor at dental school so we like to see that because it demonstrates that personality trait mm -hmm. um and I forget my other point. There you go. It's there you go. Age. It's time, isn't it? It's, it's that time. age kicking in again. <laughs> so uh, while it comes back to you, one last question that I wanted to ask you. And what, what advice would you give to, because there will be a lot of recent graduates listening to this podcast, particularly because their eyes or their ears prick up when they see that it's somebody talking about their experiences, mm -hmm. because of course we can learn from the experiences of others. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to any recent graduates who are finding their feet or what pointers would you give them that were that would be really helpful and supportive to them developing in their practice? Um, yeah, good question. And, and, and there's a few things bring to mind. One is go bush um, or join the army or, or something. We, I, I think what bothers me is that we see a few young dentists who have only got a part-time job because that's yeah. all that's available yeah. or that they work part-time over a few different practices, which in one way means that they're exposed to different practices and mm -hmm. different, different mm -hmm. um, types of practice, but it also means that their patients are left in the hands of others if something goes wrong. And it might be something minor like a high spot, a um, bit of post-operative pain. You can't attend to that personally. Um, so, look, I'd advise go bush, go country, go regional because you get a lot more experience because there's not so many specialists. 
and there's expectation that you'll have a wider scope of practice. Um, get yourself a good network of specialists. Um, refer people, patients to the specialist you think is best for them, mm -hmm. not best for you or your mate. Um, and use that relationship because most specialists are happy for you to observe them or for you to send them an, a, a PA and say, look, what do you think about the bone loss here? Um, if you've got that relationship, sure, the specialist looks after your patients, sure your pa uh, specialist gets an income, if you like, or a patient base from you, but you get to use their expertise as mm -hmm. well. And it's a great way to learn. Um, I think the other thing is to seek out variety. Um, Dentistry, I remember we asked our son once what he wanted to do when he grew up and he said, no blood, no small rooms and no mental ill for people, which is alluded to his mother, um, <laughs> her profession, her profession, not her. Um, so I, I think dentistry can be mm -hmm. a small room, 3.5 metre by 3.5 metre. With no windows. With no windows. So mm -hmm. any opportunity to get out of there? Um, and I don't mean that, you know, in, in, in a unhappy sense, but you're going to be working for 40 years. Um, if you get a variety, if you do some committee work for the ADA, if you help out with oral health day, whether you, you go to the kindergartens and give mm -hmm. talks to the kindy kids, um, you learn, you network and you see another point of view. You do. You do, and it's important. And I think by doing that, it's amazing the people that you'll meet and the mm. mentors that you'll acquire. And I think what you said about the specialists is really interesting. I, I'm very blessed to have be in Brisbane, and we have some. I mean, there's amazing specialists all across Australia. Of course, mm. there are. Mm. But because I work not that far out of the CBD, I have like a glut of specialists around me, and they are amazing. And I've just got no shame. Like I've got no qualms about ringing them up and saying I'm not sure about this or. Um, I couldn't do this. I'm sending the patient down to you yeah. um, with Rahib, with the dental diagnostic center. I'll ring him up and I'll say, Rahib, I'm not sure about this x-ray and I'll text it to him or I'll FaceTime him and we'll look at it together and work out the next best thing for the patient. Like they are amazing. Our specialist colleagues are amazing. And I think sometimes I think people are scared to contact them because they don't want to be judged or they think they're yeah, going to steal yeah. their patients. But I've never experienced that. I've no. never experienced anything but just amazing support from yeah. our specialist colleagues. And, and, and I, 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 I second that. And I guess from the dental legal advisor point of view now, um, they are the people that will see your patients when something major goes wrong. Yeah, when the chips are down. And if you've got a relationship, they're going to be possibly a little kinder to you and a little kinder to your patient. I mean, I, I put a root in a um, maxillary sinus once. Uh, who hasn't? Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that's um, a real dental legal yeah, consultant yeah. response, isn't it? If you haven't it done is. it, you haven't done it And yet. I'll give John Arvey a shout out. He's a, he's a fax max yeah. surgeon in Brisbane who's also done podcasts for us. Mm -hmm. um, John saw my patient, explained what bad luck and how well Mike had handled that and it was wonderful that he'd sent me uh, along. And he did the surgery for the rebate and convinced the anaesthetist that he should do the Bless him. Uh, anaesthetics for the rebate too. So you've got a patient who's had a poor outcome 
they're going to be pretty miserable because they've got you know, an operation at GA and they're going to have swelling, but it hasn't cost them a cent. And they have that feeling that all along the line, people have been caring about mm-hmm. them. And, and with that, you, on the, the balance of probabilities, you're going to get a far better outcome than if a patient feels they've been pushed around, they've been charged when the tooth didn't even come out in the mm-hmm. first place, mm-hmm. And then they had to sit in the ED department waiting till somebody being available. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can stack the odds in your own favour by having those relationships. It's funny you mentioned John. He, um, I think I might have told you this before, made a huge difference to my practising life when I was about eight years post-grad. I was working regionally and I had a patient come in who I'd done some extractions for and they'd gone to see the prosthetist for the lower partial denture. And they'd come back because the lower partial denture wasn't fitting properly. And the reason it wasn't fitting properly was because they had a sublingual, it turned out to be cancer, which had popped up through the extraction socket. And it wasn't visible on the OPG. Um, I took a PA and there was so much bony destruction. And John had said it had literally just once we'd created space for it, it had just popped through. Mm -hmm. Um, But I phoned the rooms, sent some photos of what I saw in a description and sent the radiographs and everything. And he organised the referral and that patient had treatment within days. Now, bear in mind, we were regional. Mm, so it was just mm. extraordinary. It was just a case of he really helped take care of that patient and he saved that patient's life. Yeah, yeah. And it was a really powerful moment for me because I think this is going to sound like a silly thing to say, but I was lucky the cancer was so obvious. There wasn't many things that was going to be popping up through the extraction mm-hmm, sockets. Mm-hmm. And it looked like you know, those classic textbook pictures you see, this is a squamous cell carcinoma. Like it looked like that. So yeah. I was lucky in that regard, but I was also really lucky that I knew who my specialist was. And he used to come regionally, as you know, mm-hmm. once a mm-hmm. fortnight. I had his contact details and he just stepped in and actioned that. So he he saved that person's life yeah. that he made and, and enabled me to provide the help that that person yeah. needed. But if you don't know who your specialist is, exactly. scratching around. I mean, that's a brilliant story. And Look, we're lauding John Arvia, but um, there's specialists <laughs> all over Australia in every discipline Absolutely. who would step up and provide the same sort of service in their own area and, and their own specialty. They would. See, because dentists are amazing. Are you wondering about whether you want to retire now? Are you changing your mind? Um, oh, no, yes. Hang on. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Um, I still love the job. I still love dentistry. Um, I just can't keep as much in the brain as I used to be able to. And I thought it's probably better to get out on my own terms than wait for the tap on the shoulder. Yeah. Well, bless your heart, Mike. I have to say (laughs) every year for years, I buy Mike a notebook and a block of chocolate for his birthday present every Mm -hmm. year, just to remind him to write things down so he doesn't forget. Yep. yep. (laughs) Okay, my darling. Well, on that note, thank you so much for your time. And just thank you for everything. Thank you for your service to the members. And we are just all going to miss you so much. Well, it's been been a wonderful time, a wonderful career, I think, um, from my perspective anyway. And, And I guess I want to thank all our members because it's only because you have faith in us and that you tell us when things are going wrong you provide us with the opportunity to help us. Um, my wife is a psychologist and she did a little bit of counselling the other day and she said, have you thought about what's going to be different, what you're going to miss when you retire? And I said, yeah, look, I'd actually thought, I go to work every day and people ask me my opinion on things and 90 entire times out of 100 they believe me and thank me. And I just know that next Monday, nobody will care less what my opinion is. 
So I'm grateful for the job. <laughs> and do you not think, you don't think your grandchildren are going to ask your opinion and really take that on board? Are They've you... already given up. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, I think we need to go and hug it out. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you all for listening. We do hope this podcast was helpful to you. And we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.